Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi, guys. Today, we're speaking with Virgie Tover. She's an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on weight-based discrimination and body image. In this episode, Virgie shares how relentless bullying became the catalyst for her to become an esteemed author, advocate, and public speaker on fat phobia and ways we can combat weight discrimination in the workplace. We hope you enjoy this episode. And if you do, please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Hi, Virgie. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing really well. (laughs) Oh, so Uh, good. Where are you calling us from? I am in San Francisco, California. It's foggy. I'm near the ocean. Is it the pretty kind of fog, though? I mean, it's kind of like the mystical, like, contemplative, like, you just want to, like, journal about your internal feelings in the fog, you know? Yeah. Like, that particular kind. Yeah, it's like that. It's really ideal for writing intense memoir sections (laughs) and stuff like, you know? Or listening to that If You're Going to San Francisco song on repeat. (laughs) Yes. Very slow motion. Yeah, Mm. totally. Yes. Love I was it. totally cheesy when I went to San Francisco. That is what I had on repeat <laughs> driving over the bridge. I was like, this is the yes, moment. Okay. You have to do it. I grew up in Ohio, and the first time I went to San Francisco, I did that. Okay. I went to, like, Abbott Kinney, and I listened to that song oh, over and over. And like, yes. It's just magical. My boyfriend's from Ohio. Oh, really? What uh, part? Van Wert. Van Wert? <laughs> Where is that? It's kind of, I guess it's, like, 40 minutes from... Indianapolis, 40 huh. minutes from Detroit. Huh. Yeah. Midwestern guy, eh? Nice. Yeah. yeah, Midwestern guy. I'm learning the Midwestern way. <laughs> it's We're so nice. We're so nice. You almost never know what we're thinking, really. We're so nice. And we smile at people and it freaks people out. We just smile at strangers. I still do it. I've lived in Sydney now for years, and I, I will just smile at people for no reason. And they're like, what is up with this crazy girl? That's a nice energy to bring to a room. Yeah. Aww. So yeah. are you yeah. from San Fran then, Virgie, or where are you from? Nearby. I mean, I grew up in a suburb not that far away, maybe about 20 minutes drive. But okay. I didn't come here growing up because it was kind of like this wild liberal city. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> Gotcha. Like, uh, yeah, my grandparents who raised me sort of wanted to protect me from that vibe, I guess. Oh, okay. Oh, God forbid you be like a, a bra burning hippie, right? Like I know, totally. Yes. It was <laughs> very much their like worst nightmare. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my parents too. My parents like had me baptized several times <laughs> trying to force oh. out the demons. 
did not work. Did not work. Oh, Whoops. I thought they rebaptized you. It's like, let's see if this time it's sick. I've never heard of multiple baths. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would get caught, like, staying out all night, and they would, like, make me get re-dumped in the tub of water in front of all the people. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Anyway, I'm glad we had both have that going for us. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us about your, so, like, your upbringing, like, where, yeah. where, where did you grow up? What was it like? What did you study? Like, everything How'd about you. How did you become you? We want to know all about it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a sort of small suburb. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, who are both Mexican immigrants. Uh-huh. And they they bought a home where they did because it was sort of semi-rural and there was only a one-lane highway in and out of the town. Um, yeah. By the time I was coming of age, though, it was a proper suburb with a mall and a Target. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so, yeah, but I mean, I was raised really kind of like Christian, like Pentecostal, which is one of the more conservative, ecstatic branches of sort of Protestantism. Um, yeah. And um, I grew up in a fat family with, um, you know, everyone around me was fat and I was a fat kid. And there was just a lot of, it was kind of an interesting combination of like a lot of love and a lot of intergenerational trauma that had no resolution. So yeah. it was like a very, and I think people who have had that particular kind of upbringing, I think it does really create a very specific kind of personality. Like I do think, you know, like on the one hand, I am extremely um resilient for example like I'm, I'm the kind of person who i'm like you know throw me on a desert island i will succeed um <laughs> and you know there's there's definitely a, a really massive work ethic that i think has to do with being raised by immigrants and yeah. also immigrants who themselves had so much trauma and had to survive a lot and then yeah. and then i think i also have this I have a lot of a wellspring of confidence that I think comes from being deeply loved. And right. and I think all, but on top, you know, I think the trauma book ends that confidence with a lot of a sense of imposterhood, a lot of a sense of constantly needing to prove myself. And so mm-hmm. I think it really from, again, I think of a lot about this, not just as someone who does the work that I do in trying to end weight discrimination and improve people's relationship to their bodies. I think of this in, in the, in the business context, right. And like yeah. how this very particular personality uh, type creates a very specific ethic around business, for example. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I mean, I, I, like a lot of kids who grew up fat, um, was taught fat phobia, essentially the idea that I was inferior because of my weight. Something was wrong with me. I was ill. I had the mm-hmm. wrong kind of relationship to my body. I had the wrong kind of relationship to food. Wow. And therefore, um, I could never, you know, be someone who was lovable and loved because of that. That was kind of what I learned. Mm-hmm. How from, did you learn you that know, as a kid? Like, how did it manifest when you were growing up with, like, other kids? Or, like, what are the... Could you give us examples just for other yeah. people to relate to? Yeah, I mean, it was... At the time, it was mostly boys my age. Yeah. Um, like, you know, boys who were, you know, trained... Like, they were being trained to be heterosexual 
cisgender men, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. By their fathers or whoever around them, I don't really know. But yeah. uh, but boys who were straight, like straight boys, kind of I specifically um, think of as the educators in fat phobia for me but like certainly I think like without their abuse I don't know that the media saturation that's really fat phobic would have hit me the same way but absolutely like after that sort of software was you know um downloaded you know essentially through them through their through their abuse um I I was then very sensitive to the fact that, like, there was no one on television who looked like me, all yeah. of the princesses who were good and innocent and amazing, and people fell in love with them. Mm-hmm. None of them were fat, mm-hmm. and villains and idiots and bad people were were fat. And so, all I mean, it was kind of like, once I had the initial software, um, it was sort of visible all around me, yeah. you know? Wow. Like, Disney's a really good example of that. Like, if you think about The Little Mermaid, yeah. Ariel is, yes. like, really, yeah. like, slim and slender, and, like, all the sisters are, and then Ursula is, like, the fat octopus that's evil. Right. Yeah, and it happens yes, in so absolutely. many different, like, reference points. We've we've discussed Disney and how it affects our view of feminism <laughs> and, like, what it are means to be... Are we millennials? Yeah. So let's guess. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> yes! Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, Ariel has a very specific... For me, like, she kind of represented... She was, like, right at that developmental age, that sweet spot where you're sort of forming... Like, you're really wanting to model yourself after someone, and Ariel kind of became that person. Yeah. And the fact that she was voiceless and tiny and she was kind of you know like she was like this victim that was being kind of battened between like these different forces and and it was like everything about her I think that I think that that's what's you know it's really interesting when you interrogate ideal femininity and think about thinness as part of it but smallness and she really represented like emotional smallness and physical smallness and mm. and like you oh know vocal gosh. smallness she was like all of the metaphorical and the physical manifestations of like ideal feminine smallness but I think in yeah. terms of like other examples I was just I was literally like on a call uh maybe last week with some middle schoolers uh-huh. who uh, are like aspiring journalists and they were like you know what advice would you give to um you know to girls our age about you know, body shaming and stuff. And I, I was, I was just recalling like the relentlessness of these boys in my class and how these adult teachers were just, I would tell them what was going on and they would just tell me to ignore them. Like just insanity. Like it was was nonstop, like from everything from like, you know, I think about my PE teacher who was like a straight man and how he would sort of like literally force me to get weighed and measured in front of the whole class and then yell out my weight all the way from like this adult grown ass straight man to like all the little tiny like soon to be straight men around me who were just like making fun of me and calling me names and making me feel uncomfortable like I remember one example that's so iconic and so like ridiculous but it was so awful and it was so humiliating was like I had this one kid who sat behind me again like a straight boy uh, sat behind me in my pre-algebra class and every time I sat back in my chair, he would jettison his feet against the ground and sm- slam his desk into the wall. 
to show like that I was so big that even uh, just sitting, oh. just relaxing into my desk seat was enough to throw him into the wall. And so you can uh, kind of imagine like being an 11 or 12 year old in a math class, trying, you know, difficult concepts are being introduced. And I can't even like relax enough to sit back in my seat because I know that this boy behind me is going to humiliate me in front of the whole class. Oh. And I, like, that's just kind of like one small thing. And then just kind mm. of like, as I came into sexual maturity, the, the texture of it kind of shifted into men wanting to have secret relationships with me and mm. wanting to have sex with me in private, um, mm. but not ha- not be in a public relationship. I mean, again, these mm. are things that, like, most, most fat women go through. So, I, I mean, I feel like it is really, it is really disturbing, but it's, yeah. I just want to, like, clarify that this is not unusual for fat women at all you know this is so you know what's interesting is i'm like i'm i'm feeling you so like i have chills right now Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to like relate it to my experience as a young girl Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. like i remember being shamed for all kinds of other things you know what i mean and like i i had never considered adding a layer of you know weight on top of or the issue of weight on top of the issues that girls already faced that I experienced. You know what I mean? Makes like it's so much worse. Yeah. yeah the like, people think they have that ownership oh, over your that weight. entitlement like, yeah. to just yeah. like t- say whatever you want to girls. I remember like mm-hmm. and I it was a small town in Ohio. Okay, so take this with whatever. But you know, it's like I remember guys like if your skirt was slightly too short and their perception you were a slut. Yeah. And then they would call you right. slut. And I remember being slammed into a locker and someone screaming slut at me when I was a, like wow. freaking really? like I yeah, I was like a 13-year-old girl. Because, yeah, because, and and boys used to, and I remember, like, and that's always, I've always thought about that and, like, how young girls go through that. Mm. I had never considered the experience of an overweight girl Mm. because, you know, you only think about what you lived. Yeah. That's why I think it's so important that, that, Virgie, the work that you're doing on, like, the awareness of weight discrimination and how actually as a society, it's quite, like, subconscious the way that people are fatphobic. Yeah. Like, people don't mean... Like, I don't think, like, a lot of women mean to be fatphobic in some things that we say to each other, but right. it can come across like that, and it is. Like, if you're saying someone like... We did an example on Insize recently where we said um, something that's fatphobic that you don't realise is, oh, you've lost so much weight, you look so good now. Right. Like, it's kind of like, well, you're like, why didn't I look good before? Like, just because I've lost weight doesn't mean that now, like, I'm I'm pretty and I was ugly because I was fat. Like, it's all these, like, subtleties in our language and how we talk to each other and what we reward each other with in terms of weight that is so intrinsic and... I think, yeah, I'm really passionate about raising awareness of this and changing behavior. Wow, this is insane. Okay, mm. Virgie, keep going. Please, please <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I think about kind of the, I, and I think I've been, I've had time to think about it. And yeah. I've had, uh, you know, other colleagues, you know, educate me as well. And I just think about how, all of it is part of sexualized violence, right? Like kind of the the systemic way in which these boys just cut away 
day in and day out yeah. and my confidence and how that mm. primed me to be someone who was ready to enter a rape. I mean, I was already in rape culture. Right. And I think we have this idea that, like, you know, it's only through explicitly sexualized messages or only in, you know, explicitly sexual environments that we're experiencing sexual violence. But in actuality, like, what happened to me had everything to do with, like, gender violence, had everything to do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just me as a fat person. It was it was me as, um, you know, a gendered person, as a racialized person, as yeah. a person who is who would then go on to, you know, like, live in a world that is dominated by straight masculinity. Um, and so, anyway, like, I mean, I, I, think, I think a lot about that. Those were, that was kind of, like, my, my formative years. Yeah. Mm. So what happened next? Like, how did you, as you grew and as you, like, came into your own and became a woman, you know, like, how did you turn? Because when you, I look at your photos and your presence and your videos and everything now, I'm like, what a force. Mm. What a force for good. What an absolute, just like looking at your absolute joy for living (laughs) is so uplifting. (laughs) So how did you get from there to here? Um... I'm, it was like a series of experiences. I think, you know, to begin with, I remember, um, I mean, the first turning point wasn't really radical at all. Like, I just remember um, I hit sexual debut and I was uh, looking for, I wanted to have sex and I wanted to date. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, to find that in my community because mm. not even necessarily because there weren't boys who were interested in me. It was because the boys who tortured me would torture them too, if they dated me. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, you know, like, so anyway, I had to go outside of my community. And once I was outside of my immediate community, I found a lot of interest and love and attractiveness. It was, and again, it was just like, oh my God, the idea that some, that I wasn't like this hideous, horrible, ugly, disgusting monster, which is what these boys had taught me. And like the, the idea that I wasn't that was like hugely, massively paradigm shifting for me yeah. at the age of 17 or 18. finding you know actual desire and finding that it was in very large supply actually Um, yeah yeah yeah. you know was kind of like really mind-boggling to me and then you know so that was I think for me that really that sort of set off a switch where I was like well if they lied to me about this what else did they lie to me about and I think that really set me off on kind of a quest almost where it's like wait a minute you know it's kind of like like literally if you can imagine right you've been told that the the four walls of a room are your entire world and then someone sort of peels back and says like you know there's more out there and it just it just set off my curiosity massively and so it went from kind of like that really simple pursuing sexual pleasure that kind of like sort of catapulted me into this journey and it landed me on the doorstep of feminism mm-hmm. which I think really changed my life um and once I started to understand the concepts of like autonomy the idea that I got to live life on my own terms the idea that you know that that I was beautiful and that there was nothing wrong with me and that misogyny had done all these things to me um that was really massive and then and then you know I, I was very lucky that that path led me to going to graduate school and I ended up researching um, how fatness impacted 
gender among women of color. I was really interested in understanding how um, for girls, for women who have been fat their whole lives, how being fat had affected their gender trajectory. And it really impacted mine. Um, And so I ended up finding that, you know, similar to me, like a lot of the women I interviewed had a very complex understanding of their gender based because they had experienced so much fat phobia and because like the don't like you know and to break it down a little bit right like what girls and women are taught that in order to be the most feminine you have to be small and so if you're fat and you're sort of axiomatically not cutting it on that very basic fundamental rule yeah you know it sort of does lead to a little bit of confusion like am I a girl like I remember thinking Mm -hmm. kind of like okay like I can't fit into anything in the girls department so what department am I supposed to be in the boys or the men's or the women's department um and I was like there's no department for me so am I even a girl and thinking like you know boys treat girls like they're delicate little flowers but boys don't treat me like that they treat me kind of like I'm another boy Mm, and so what am I um and and so it's anyway so like you know that that landed me kind of accidentally very luckily in fat activism, um, which is a form of activism that's actually been around since 1969, um, but that I was introduced to at, you know, in, in like 2010, 2011. And at that time, it was like this gorgeous, really radical, very fabulous, very feminine, very superlative movement that I landed in. And it it completely blew my mind. Like they literally, it was like, they were like, yeah, you you never have to diet again. Boom. I didn't diet anymore. Like there's something <laughs> wrong with your body. Boom. I'm like, okay, great. It's like, and you can have this like bombastic, amazing, you know, kind of like very almost like cinematically, dramatically feminine life if you want yeah. at your current size. Yeah. And it was just, it was like so intoxicating to me. So that's kind of, that was like what, that was what started everything. That's kind of like where the transition happened during those moments. Yeah. Awesome. I've done some research on this, just like a little bit of Googling. Um, and you probably already know this, but I just, for our listeners, like this is super interesting. Mm-hmm. The first fat feminist movement in the 60s and 70s did not get support from the National Organization for Women. Really? For whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Insane. It's interesting because, like, at that time, so this is kind of like a little bit of a factoid. Yeah. At that time, that was when there was a transition. So, so, uh, so, so there was a moment where, you know, fat feminists approached the mainstream feminism movement and they were like, this is a little bit too extreme. Yeah. And, and from <laughs> that conversation emerged the phrase body image. They were like, we don't want to get down with this fat thing, but we're down to have kind of like a more quote unquote inclusive version of that. And that's where the feminist conversation on body image came. So in some ways that was the first iteration of the fat movement turning into a more inclusive, less, less radical version. And we kind of see that ripple effect in body positivity today, you know? Wow. Huh. That's crazy. So so this is around 2010, 2011 kind of time. So at this point, yeah. are you now, so this is kind of just pre-Instagram in a way, and now your yeah. Instagram is huge. You've got a massive following on there. What was 
what what were you doing slightly before Instagram? Were, were you like starting to write? How how is your yeah. activism? How did it all kick off? And then how did that then move into your Instagram and um, and what you do now? Like how did you become an? Like did you set out to be an influencer? Because they obviously didn't necessarily exist in the way that they do today. Like influence influencers as a mm. as a you know job. So what did no, you do? I- yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did, the category didn't exist, you're right, and, like, I did not set out to, to do that, um, but, I mean, I think it kind of really, uh, so the, the kickoff was, I, I just, I remember just knowing what, once I had sort of met fat activism, I sort of knew that they were onto something really powerful, they were going to change the culture, mm-hmm. I just knew it, like, in my bones, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I wanted to introduce the, the wider culture to these women, these, these femmes who I had met, um, and I pitched a book, an anthology to a women's press in California. Um, and I was like, listen, you know, this is about to blow up. Like you guys, we like th- these voices need to be heard and women need to hear that they don't have to diet ever again. Mm-hmm. And they need to hear that they get to be, they can be fat and nothing's yeah. wrong with them. And, um, and so, you know, I remember pitching the book right before grad school. I mean, it's funny, right? Because like grad school really did change my like the experience I had in that time really changed my life. But even before I pitched it, and this was like 2008, right? Oh, okay. Like I, I was, I pitched a concept in 2008. They were like, we love this idea. We have no idea how to reach this market. Huh. At that time, there was not even understood a market that was interested in a, a critical conversation about body positivity or weight discrimination. They wow. they were like, we know it's interesting. We have no idea how to reach this market, right? Huh. And so I, they're like, come back in a few years. We might be able to figure this out. So I go back as I'm finishing grad school. Mm-hmm. I repitch uh, an anthology concept. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yes, we're going to do it. Um, and so the anthology ended up being a collection of writing by 30 women who had stopped dieting. Mm-hmm. And who were like living life at their size unapologetically, uh-huh. um, and it was kind of like their stories, and it ended up being called "Hot and Heavy." Um, <laughs> and so there was a section on sort of like life lessons, like parenting and things like that, and there was a section on love and romance and sexuality, mm-hmm. and there was a section on fashion. Um, and and it was like this really powerful book. And before it even came out, there was just it, people caught wind of it and were asking me to lecture at universities wow even after before I even had my before I had my master's degree and so I just you know it's just that sense that it was like this urgency around the conversation and I had kind of a combination of at that point I had a pretty rigorous theoretical have theoretical training in social sciences at that point and I also had lived the life of this person who I was sort of like theorizing on and I think it was that combination of like that academic training and that very clear grounded personal experience Mm. that I think was really um made it sort of urgent for people to to hear it um and so and then from there I just you know was so I think my my entry point really was writing. I've always loved writing. Um, and so and I, I've always loved sort of telling people stories as well. So, yeah. I mean, and, and so I think like that was how it started. And then I just kind of kept doing it. And for me, there's just been a really 
always been a sense of urgency around, you know, like kind of wanting women to have this information as quickly as possible so that we can stop living this like half life that mm. we've been told is our whole life. And, um, and so, you know, it, it just kind of has kept going from there. I've done writing, I've done all these different platforms. And then I, you know, someone introduced me to Instagram and was just like, you should do it. And I was like, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know. I don't know. And then enough people <laughs> kind of pushed me and I was finally like, okay, and I started doing it. And I was like, I love this. I love taking photographs. And I mean, I think like there's, I mean, it's just a personal passion of mine to like tell stories through photographs, but, but also I think from a political standpoint, when you're fat and you're a woman, like there was no, there were no images of fat women that weren't created by bigoted, mostly straight men in media before these platforms existed. And so if you can imagine like the power of women authoring their own story, like telling, you know, this is who I am. I am not like, you know, I am not this like sad, pathetic, lonely, idiotic, evil person yeah. <laughs> um, that the culture has, has said that I am. I am this like vibrant, stylish, you know, person who has all of these complex interests. And, and I think, you know, so I mean, I, I became one of the people doing that, you know? Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, like, this is just so empowering for all women. Like, it doesn't matter what your size or natural body type is or whatever, you know? Like, just listen. I just want to read our listeners one of your posts. Um, There will be no one like us when we are gone, but then there is no one like anyone else ever. Um, You quote Oliver Sacks, but then you say, this week's homework, appreciate exactly how your eyes look when you laugh, exactly how chubby your cheeks are, exactly how many chins you've got. There's no one like you, and there will never be. Like, Mm. it's so profound for every single freaking human alive. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Thank you. It's just so good. It's just so good. And it's that, like— your your what you put out in the world, like your academic background and all of the knowledge that you have, and then your personal story that you're willing to just open up and share. It's just such a unique, beautiful blend. And how you're able to articulate what so many women feel but don't know how, how to, say. to say it or yeah. how they're feeling it. I think that's one of the most powerful things that you do as well. And um, you started, was it in 2018 that you started the, the hashtag that started trending, which is lose hate, not wait? And to date, that's had over 140. 46,000 posts beautiful um which has obviously just gone viral and um and it led to you doing a TED talk do you want to tell us a little bit about that oh yeah we want to hear it yeah I mean the the hashtag has been around like it's been around for a lot longer I don't even I think it was like probably 2013 when I had the inspiration for it I remember waking up you know, one morning I was like, Lucy, no, wait. I was like, it was just like that kind of like that. I'm like, oh my goodness, I had an idea. And, and so also as someone who's like super long-winded, I am like the worst. Like I literally, like my brain is like, if there's 48 words to say three words, my brain will automatically choose that path. Um, so it was like one of those ones I was like, oh my God, a succinct call to action that entirely encapsulates my viewpoint on this issue um well like what a gift and so the TED talk um it was it was interesting right like I got approached to to do it and I I, it was like this really interesting 
there was a little bit of like a power struggle that happened. I mean, the tech platform, I mean, depending, like, I don't know, I don't want to be too universalizing, but a lot of times the TED platform kind of, it's a little bit more like, you know, how do we, how do we um, make the message easy to understand for the person who might even be kind of the skeptic? Mm-hmm. And I just, I am not someone whose messaging is directed at the skeptic. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. I'm like, you know, like, if you want to come to my amazing, beautiful, incredible, sparkly party, you have an invitation. If you don't know that I have a, if you don't want to come to my amazing, sparkly, beautiful party, I don't know what to say because there's nothing, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You're like, was, I don't give a, a fuck bit. enough to fight with you. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to fight with like, you. you know, if you don't like amazing sparkly things, that's fine. Like, that's what I have to offer. Um, right. So, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. So, it was a little bit of a power struggle where they were, like, they kept wanting me to be, like, okay, but you've got to tell, you, you can talk about, you can talk about being fat and loving being fat, but you've got to tell people that you're healthy. And I'm, like, no, I refuse to do that. I'm, like, my human rights don't rely upon what is in my medical chart. Nobody's human rights do. Yeah. And so, it was kind of, like, like this interesting thing where we, I think we finally did kind of settle on um, messaging that I felt really, really good about. But like one of the first things, one of the ideas that I had at the start of the TED Talk is a little bit of a, like a bait and switch, if you will, um, where I ended up asking a friend of mine who sort of has similar um, attributes to me physically on paper, but she's like the thin version of me. Um, like she kind of has the same hair color and same skin color and, um, you know, around the same height. And I ended up, you know, we got her an outfit that was almost identical to the one that I was planning to wear. And Uh she got these fake glasses because she doesn't have myopia like I do. (laughs) And and she came on stage and sort of pretended to be me and was like, I'm going to talk to you about weight discrimination. I'm going to talk to you about diet culture. Um, And, you know, like would and then she kind of she has a little bit of an introduction. And then she's like, but, you know, would you give me as much credibility? Would you be as willing to believe me if instead of the size I am now, I was actually 100 pounds heavier? And then I come on stage and I'm kind of like, this is, and I repeat what she said. And I said, are are you willing to believe me knowing that I'm this size? Um, And I think like, I really wanted the audience to have that bigotry in real time experience, you know, like, oh my God, this, like that feeling that you just had that transition um, of like how you felt about this person versus how you feel about me. um, You know, that's, that's the learning moment, right? That's Mm. like the moment when the unconscious bias is exposed. And I think it's really powerful for people, you know? Because people will deny so many unconscious biases Mm. and unless they are like completely confronted and can't deny them. Like, you know, it's, it's just so, it's so ingrained in a lot of people to just defend themselves. Oh, I'm not like that. Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I have friends of all weights, shapes, and sizes. I don't, I don't judge people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, that's what you want to say, mm. right? But then having that moment where you realize, oh, did I just judge that person? Yeah. Yeah. And you're completely confronted with it. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's genius, to be honest. Yeah. How did the audience react? Did you yeah, see it what, in their what faces? Yeah, what feedback did you get? I think, you know, it's a, it's frustrating because it's like, it's so bright on the stage. You can't see anything. Um, and so I didn't get to see, I did not get to see the reaction at all. Um, I didn't, so I don't, I don't know, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of people have really 
resonated with, like in particular, the introduction um, to the TED Talk. That's the introduction. But I, you know, I continue and kind of talk. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the the TED Talk is about jiggling, right? Like, and yeah. it's like it's about that childhood relationship to the body, which mm-hmm. is, and then and and then how you know our culture, whether it's through diet culture or any number of things, how the culture kind of teaches us not to have that beautiful relationship to our bodies yeah. um mm-hmm. and and so I kind of start out like the book ends of the TED talk are sort of like this this memory this picture this moment of me as a four-year-old who just you can tell from this photograph that I have not learned body shame yet mm-hmm. um and and I used to love to come home and like take off all my clothes and jiggle <laughs> and it was so much fun and then kind of like losing that and the journey of like losing the jiggle and then reclaiming it and coming back to it as an adult. And then I ended with, um, you know, this image of a group of women and me jiggling on the beach. Like I took a bunch of women to Jamaica on a retreat and every morning we would get up and, and we would take off all of our clothes. I mean, obviously clothing optional if they wanted to keep their clothes on. <laughs> but it was like this super private retreat area. Yeah. And we would take off all of our clothes on the beach and like jiggle, you know? <laughs> and it was like this so fun. <laughs> yes. I love that. I'm like picturing you guys dancing around in a circle. Yeah. Like having the best time. Yes. That's yes. so fun. It's so freeing and like liberating yeah. to have that. Yeah. So how do we kind of like from your point of view, um, a lot of our listeners are female business owners or have employees or maybe just haven't even like heard of this concept before. How do we firstly end weight discrimination for people that we like in the workplace and like people that work for us or if we're in the hiring process? Yeah. And how do you think as well that weight discrimination affects female business owners when they're like trying to get new clients and how can we react and respond well to that kind of weight discrimination that's in the market? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways to tackle this question. And I want to kind of start out by saying, you know, it's it's never your fault when someone else makes a business decision that is bigoted and based on fat phobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just want to give that sort of permission slip, if you will, to all women. I think for a, what I've noticed is I, I write for, um, or I'm a contributor for Forbes.com. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, contributorship like I've gotten to interview a lot of um, plus size women who are in the C-suite like they're either founders or they're bosses right Um, Mm -hmm. and so one of the most interesting things has been that for a lot of these women they became entrepreneurs because they couldn't get a job in the business sector uh, you know in in the professional world of wherever they lived because of fat phobia Mm. Um, and so and they've gone on to become you know, bosses, they've gone on to become much more compassionate leaders and much more well-rounded CEOs, right? As a result of the experiences they've had. So I want to say like, you know, it's never your fault. And also always approach this with a strengths-based assessment, right? Mm -hmm. Always approach the fact that like, what has what I have gone through, no matter how unfair it is and how much I wish it hadn't happened, how has it made me a better leader, a better candidate? Yeah. Um, and just always approach from that perspective. I think I want to also say, you know, um, 
there's it's going to take a lot for uh, for discrimination for weight based discrimination to end. I mean, the the most fundamental one is like right now, certainly in the United States, it's perfectly legal to discriminate on the basis of weight in forty eight out of fifty states. Um, so right now, I mean, the, so the law has to change. So that that's like a fundamental thing wow. that has to change. Yeah, and then. I think, sorry, I had a little bit of a burp. Um, <laughs> but then, I mean, I think what the, the, the next level really does have to do with changing the work environment. I think to begin with, right, like, this is something that, that I think really surprised me and I think surprises a lot of people is when I started working with women on the issue of, you know, body acceptance and, and, and anti-diet work and things like that, um, you know, I asked them, what is the number one place where you experience discomfort and discrimination around your body? And I really thought they were going to say, you know, when I visit my family or when I'm dating, and they pretty much all of them say at work. Hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting, right? Because they, it's, so first of all, a lot of women work in woman dominated fields just because of sexism. Mm -hmm. Um, and what ends up happening in these sort of like women, like women experience the pressures of diet culture in a really unique way. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when women are in the same space, you end up seeing kind of like the, the sort of the feedback loop and they, and sort of like what ended up happening was what, what was triggering people. What they were telling me was it was actually the constant, chattering and food talk like the food talk like the mm. constant talk about weight loss the constant talk about whether or not you were good or bad for eating wow. a certain snack whether you know whether you were good or bad for like taking a walk during your lunch break um and then there were like interesting um they would tell me about these like manip food manipulation games that some co-workers would play like I remember one client it was really really triggering for her where there was one person who worked in her office who every single day brought like a bag of candy and would very ceremoniously ceremonially kind of like empty the bag into a bowl and then she would spend the whole day and like you know sort of pushing it on people sort of like you know and, and like and would feel really huh. good about abstaining from eating the candy and um, like, you know, just kind of like, I mean, this is just diet culture, right? It sounds, it sounds kind of like a little bit absurd, right? Like, but I I kid you not, like, this is just, this is just normal everyday parts of diet culture. Like, and if you, if you really kind of start to tune in, I sort of encourage people if you can imagine like the volume dial on something, if you could kind of like turn up the volume on the food talk, just yeah. notice how ubiquitous it is. Yeah. Right. Like if we want to create a weight neutral and, and right, the understanding is we're all doing this so that we aren't fat. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to yeah. create a weight neutral environment, we have got to stop moralizing around food Um, and so that constant kind of the weight challenges that I mean literally there are moments where I'm like the egregious violation of privacy that occurs during weight challenges is just mind-boggling to me as like someone who's like has their own business right like that is just privacy violation 101 I think the next thing is this is another big one um, weight restricted activities at work. Um, like, and this actually comes from a relationship that I had an experience I had in a former relationship where I was dating a fat person and at work they were doing, they were brainstorming 
team building activities. And the one that everybody voted for was a weight restricted indoor skydiving activity. He was the only person who was above the weight limit. And he just came home completely devastated and like really a wreck because he had to be the, the quote unquote dissenting voice. And he felt like he was ruining the good time and the exciting thing that everybody else wanted to do, that he was a stick in the mud. It just made him feel like he didn't belong on the team, you know? And so I think like those kinds of things are things that like these weight challenges, weight restricted activities, and the the kind of incessant discussion about food. Those are things that sort of environmentally need to go if we're going to move towards a weight neutral environment. And I think the last thing I would say for people who are hiring, I think it's really important to do the advocacy work. Like I was re- like, you know, with within and among like groundswell within and among your leadership team. Um, like I was really impressed by so the uh, so the activewear company Athleta mm-hmm. um recently launched a, a program that essentially is like they're training all 55 5,500 sales associates in every single store on body positive weight neutral language and also how to discuss fit with plus size women plus size customers yeah wow. and in their leadership team they're doing unconscious bias training around this and so I think it really does take commitment. You know, it takes commitment to say, like, we're not going to use this language. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to take some time to think about how, you know, how does the the sort of cultural portrayal of fat people as inept, as less intelligent, as less disciplined, as less capable of leadership. How do those things affect how we're hiring and who we're hiring? Right. And so I think it does take it does take time to change that environment. But if you're really committed to doing that, I think that it actually ultimately obviously creates a better work environment for everyone because at the end of the day it's not just higher weight people it's not just fat people who have eating disorders it's not just fat people who get triggered by food moralizing right you know? um oh yeah so i think that and i think right like and when we don't when we don't hire people with diverse bodies, we end up recreating size by an environment of size bias yeah. over and over yeah. and over again, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just like any kind of discrimination, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're a company that only hires men, like you're yeah. going to like, you know, only yeah. have male opinions and male ideas. And so yeah, yeah. It's any, it's just like any other thing. If you wouldn't discuss someone's race openly, like if that would make you feel uncomfortable yeah. in a work meeting, why would you discuss weight? Yeah. You know, like why would that be okay? Yeah. It's the same thing. You know, you're discussing someone's appearance. Virgie, how do you feel about the word fat as an adjective? Because for many people, it's a loaded word. It's used as an insult. It's used to yeah. like, put people down. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just a, dis- a descriptive word, in my opinion. How do you feel about being labeled as fat or labeling yourself? Yeah, as- I mean, I think it's like, I mean, it, it is a loaded word. Even for me, as someone who uses that word a lot, like every day, multiple times a day. Yeah, um, I'm I'm aware that it's happening within a political context, and I use the word to sort of 
activate that that maybe I think like for me it's it's a very kind and loving and affectionate it's an intimacy building word yeah um, but but I think within the greater context that I'm, I'm aware that I use that word and it's, it's sort of it does create discomfort and I'm here for that discomfort I'm like you know fat people have to be uncomfortable all the time in the culture yeah and so you know if I'm gonna throw out that word um, it's, it's sort of like meant to sort of shift the dynamic. I kind of think about it how I, I think of it really in relationship to power. Like, yes. you know, I think that the word fat feels like a looming threat all the time. Like when you're, I, I just remember before I used that word, I used to be, I remember like almost like my ears were perked up, ready to hear that word anywhere, in any room, at any time, right? Yeah. I was like, I felt like I was hyper vigilantly aware and terrified of that word. And I think in the and when you're talking about power, that really is a disempowering position. And so mm-hmm. for me, when I'm like, I'm going to be the first one who says that word in the room, yeah. I'm flipping the power dynamic. I'm taking back the power. It's not a threat. Like the, the threat is no longer looming because mm-hmm. I am embodying, I am the one who is wielding that word. That word, that word is not being thrown at me. Mm-hmm. I am wielding it. And yeah. I just think that, that like, it's just kind of like, like, I mean, if the metaphor of like taking over, like sitting in the driver's seat rather than like sitting in the passenger seat, you know? Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I think it's so important to take it back. And like, it's like Beyonce wanted to reclaim the word bitch so that it can be yeah. used against yes. women in a negative t- context. It's like bitch yeah. is a powerful word for, for women. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I still contend with the question, you know, why are you guys able to call each other bitches? Like me and my bitches. Yeah. But we can't call you that. Like I've had men ask me that. Yeah. And I've, I've really struggled to explain to them why, mm-hmm. you know. It's Taking just, ownership. Right. Like yeah. you, you just don't get to just, yeah. just shut up. Just don't do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's an it's interesting like, thing. It's just like one thing that's off the shelf that you don't get to have. Right. right. I mean, like you have the whole shelf. I've got like three, you got like a whole shelf. You've got five shelves full every, and it's like busting with things. Yeah. Like, I've got a shelf over here and there, I've got one thing on this shelf that you can't have. Yeah. And it's, again, it's like, it's that, it's that, it's that struggle with the power. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, my shelf is empty, but you can't stand that I've got one thing that is on your shelf and you've just got to sit with that you've got to sit with that discomfort like I'm sorry you know and I think like um I think that's kind of for me it's like you know you just don't get to have everything that you want um and that's a powerful lesson for people who have a lot of privilege and a lot of access yeah yeah Yeah, sorry Charlie (laughs) yes not happening Virgie this was an incredible interview it's so great to speak with you and I really want um you to share where our listeners can find your Instagram and um just hear more from you um, and what you've got coming up if they want to kind of get more involved with this and and keep being inspired by you Yes. Um, so I am on Instagram at Virgie Tovar, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V as in Victor, A-R. And I have a podcast called Rebel Eaters Club. It's a, it's a podcast that essentially is like, hey, all food is good food. All bodies are good bodies. Yeah. And I talk to incredible, amazing human beings and we 
eat um, together on every episode, and it's really, yes. really fun. Season two has just come out. It's really powerful. Um, I have a new project coming out. It's a little bit of a, su- a secret still, so, um, but it will be out in, uh, you know, next year, spring of 2022, and it's going to be amazing. Um, and uh yeah, and then you can go to my website, virgitovar.com. I teach a couple of classes, um, online classes. One is called Babe Camp, which is the basics of breaking up with diet culture. And one is called um, Anti-Diet Work as Death Work, uh, which kind of gets into the theme of grappling with like loss and moving into an anti-diet mentality um, while doing a lot of emotional accountability around what that really means and what the stakes are. So it's kind of like a really beautiful um, like pairing to, to babe camp. That's awesome. So much to get stuck in with. <laughs> Loved it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. So good meeting oh, you, Virgie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're connecting with you on every single platform. So you have to keep in touch with us. <laughs> you don't have a choice. <laughs> and now that Sylvie's slid into your... See, this is what happens when you let Sylvie slide into your DMs. <laughs> yes! I always will. Thanks, Virgie. Have a lovely evening and speak soon. You Chat too. soon. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by Invoice2Go. We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere, at any location around the globe. We're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current U.S. pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just enter the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.